gentlemen, welcome to episode 224 of the 1099. As always, I am your host, Joseph Noop, and I'm so glad you're here with us. And I am very glad to welcome two key members of the Outer Worlds development team, narrative designer Natai Podar and senior designer Brian Haynes. Gentlemen, how are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm good. I actually, I made a very professional flub. I should have asked name pronunciation. Did I get it correct there? Uh, it's Heinz, like the ketchup, only spelled differently. Heinz, there we go. Okay, uh, <laughs> Natai, I was able to find you on like you know Giant Bomb interviews and uh, IGN, so I was like, okay, I got him, I got him. But it's gonna be Brian of all people who trips me up. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I I have been enjoying my time immensely with Outer Worlds, and uh, congrats on of course launching the game and uh, having a really great reception. Uh, I actually just wrapped up with. Uh, Another member of the Terra Bruno PR team, JV Gwaldney, uh, a former colleague of mine, uh, talking about his work there and helping to launch the game and his you know, new PR capacity and uh, spent a little bit of time gushing about the game. So it's been a very it's been a very outer worlds kind of month for me. I said I noticed that it's kind of been back to back outer worlds for your podcast this week. Yeah, it's it's been a lot. Uh, and, you know, before we dive into things there, I I am very curious, both for my sake and for my audience sake, uh, could I get a quick explanation of what is your job on the Outer Worlds? What would you say it is you do here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is uh, Brian Hines. I'm a senior designer at Obsidian. For the Outer Worlds, I did a lot of area design work, uh, doing quest design, area layouts, that sort of thing. And I led one of our area creation strike teams that I that were directed towards finishing up areas for the game. Uh, I'm I like that, strike uh, teams. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I worked on, I'm a narrative designer. Um, people tend to think that's just writing, but it's, it's more than that. It's, uh, it's, it's involved in quest design, it's involved uh, in working with our voice acting talent. Um, I, I work very closely with the area designers and, and pretty much everybody on the team to get our players a fun, exciting story. I was responsible for the Emerald Vale region, Phineas Wells, the adjutant Sophia Akande, and also Felix Millstone. Um, it's been a lot of fun just being a part of this project from start to finish. It is it is a very unique world, and uh, it's been very exciting to explore just this you know very uh, dark comedic take on like sci-fi late stage capitalism run amok, of course. Uh, it's it's very clear that you guys kind of tackled this new universe with a very uh, clear idea, I suppose, of the kind of world you wanted to build. And I suppose from a narrative and a kind of a gameplay design standpoint, um, how, how do you build a sci-fi world that sort of embodies a lot of these very capitalist exploitation kind of tropes uh, that we're so used to here in the modern day? It's It's, it, it's obviously... It's sci-fi, but it's that kind of uh, uh, critical sci-fi that reminds us of our own world, right? How do you go about building that from the ground up, but uh, make it entertaining, I suppose? So basically summarize like the last two and a half years of development <laughs> for <Yeah. laughs> starting off, starting off very small, of course. Yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of it, a lot of this came down to obviously the direction from Tim Kaine and Leonard Boyarsky on what this game was they wanted to create and they really set the tone and the vision for the game and then translated that to us on um, the actual development team as we were working on it um, a lot of it was 
Like, if you talk more about the actual like character development and how like you would project writing different characters, on the area design side, it was a lot of looking at how we design layouts to maximize placement for like things like advertisements and corporate branding and presentation. Like everything in the game has some tie of some sort to a corporation of one sort or another and ways that we could design quests that basically take things like uh, gameplay elements that you'd find in like a traditional RPG and how we could twist that to give it a nice corporate theme and give the players a chance to like experience this kind of absurd world we've created from with, like with a different lens that things that we would think of are as just silly or not realistic at all everyone in this world just approaches as just completely factual and the standard and that's like where a lot of the humor comes from yeah yeah it's um the the process of creating this setting and bringing it to life is, is a very long process and it took us pretty much the development of the entire game to get there mm -hmm. the genesis of that of this idea came from tim and leonard our directors they wanted a kind of I think they had a broad strokes idea of what this game was going to feel like. Early on, the game was defined as Firefly meets Fallout. And to mm -hmm. me, that means there is a lot of the dark and uncomfortable absurdity of Fallout mixed with the uh, the feeling of a space adventure, of, of just a good old-fashioned um, pulp science fiction story mm -hmm. from Firefly. But then what happened after that is a long period of lots of talented develop developers contributing to that idea. Uh, games aren't made by a few people sitting in a room with a whiteboard, regardless of what the writer's room actually looks like. Uh, <laughs> everybody had something to add to the creation of this setting. Um, our concept designers, our sound team, uh, even the feedback we received from QA, it was, it was very much a process of the entire team going into this idea, discovering what it's about, and kind of exploring on our own way to tell stories within the space. Mm -hmm. So that what you see when the game is finally shipped is the end result of a lot of developers kind of sharing our vision of what the game could feel like and putting it all together. Yeah, I think one of the things when you look at the end result, everything like it, it comes together, it makes sense in the context of the areas and the quests. What you don't see is a lot of the like, mistakes and missteps that happened along the way, where because this is the first game in this, this IP, a lot of it for the team was trying to figure out what this game was and how we translate Tim and Leonard's vision into the actual quests and areas. So there was a lot of points in development where we would work on a quest idea or an area idea and we have to like, make several revisions as we we're trying to like hone in on exactly what makes a, a quest in the outer worlds feel like something unique to this environment so the the end game is a result of a lot of iteration and a lot of work between the various developers to like hone in on what the actual story is yeah i think there's a lot of um we're all kind of mutually familiar with uh, the IPs or the stories that inspired the setting to begin with. Like sometimes in the process of discovering what this game is about, we will go to something else that already exists and say, all right, let's make it a little bit like this and see what happens. Like sometimes we're working on a quest or we want to write a character and we'll think, hey, why don't we why don't we throw a little bit of Futurama here, see what happens? Or 
why don't we do a little bit of Firefly here? Or maybe here we should just go full 1984, full Brazil, and see how it turns out. Mm -hmm. um, we're all reaching into the same bag of inspiration, and we're um, you know, pulling out things that, that appealed to us in the past. So as you play the game, you start seeing kind of the DNA of all these, uh, of all these media that we're a fan of that then get translated into the game. It is funny that you mentioned Futurama too, of course, a, a, a delivery company of misfits, right? Yeah. Um, it can, can often feel like very similar to the traditional uh, quest, uh, do me a favor kind of quest structure of, of a lot of RPGs. Uh, and, I, and I do appreciate that you kind of lay it out as here's Firefly meeting the uh, the kind of funny dark comedy of fallout uh because i i remember in firefly of course uh their their vision of the future is much more chinese uh everyone swears in chinese because that just happens to be like i guess the predominant corporate or or societal culture uh in amongst those like outer rim style planets mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. whereas fallout of course is very reliant on its americana um that yeah. is very western uh and uh, outer world still feels pretty western every town kind of feels like a sci-fi version of that one dirt yeah, road yes. wild west town uh did it did it feel like just the right decision to make it feel uh, about as Western kind of influenced as something like Fallout, or was that another decision that took a long time to settle on? I don't know exactly where the decision to bring out the Western vibes happened, whether it happened in a meeting or whether it was something that we all discovered. But I know that we definitely did lean into Firefly's love of language, for lack of a better term. Uh, Firefly loves its linguistic tricks. It loves its slang. Um, it uses Chinese, yes, as a way to build its own lore and say that in the future, you know, maybe the lingua franca isn't just English, uh, but it also cleverly uses Chinese as a way to get around television censors. Um, <laughs> the idea is that Firefly loves its language and the colorful use of language is something that endears that setting to its fans. So we thought, why don't we, why don't we do something similar? I mean, we are uh, we are a company known for our writing, and, and we should lean into colorful language. We should try to make the the writing and the language and the way people talk and the way people communicate as vibrant as possible, mm -hmm. partly because we also want to create a contrast between that kind of vibrancy, that kind of color, with the horrible, soul-crushing, awful corporatism that pervades the entire setting. Uh, it's something that informs our design decision right down to the way we create our art. Like even our art is very colorful, very bright, uh, very playful even, but it's covering a veneer of something very dark and, and a bit disturbing. And I think as far as the like, kind of the Western feel and inspiration for some of our buildings that you'd see in, in the outer worlds, part of that is we talk about the Halcyon colony being like the far frontier of human expansion in this galaxy. And we talk, talk about frontier, at least for Western developers, Westerns are the last real touchstone for that. And it's important when we're talking about making a new sci-fi environment where there's different plants and animals and trees, having things that are familiar for people as a common touchstone helps them ground the more fantastical sci-fi elements to where they don't feel too far out. They still seem like, okay, because you have those 
things you can relate to and looking at like a Western style wooden porch in front of a building, it gives you this immediate thing like, okay, I understand that. Now other things fall into context more clearly as a result of that. Yeah, Brian's point is important. Uh, relatability is something yeah. we really wanted to hit. Um, I think this goes back to your earlier question about how do you tell a story about a corporate dystopia? Well, I think that's something everybody can kind of relate to. I don't think anybody will pick up the game and say, what's this, corporations run amok and dehumanizing people? What a strange idea. What I've a strange, what a foreign concept, I, I, I think, as I sit here in my expensive apartment working for $20 an hour, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's an idea that I think everybody can kind of have fun with one yeah. way or another because it's something we all relate to. Yeah, nothing else ever had that first job when you're, you're oh 16 where you get yelled at for clocking in one minute after your start time or clocking out two minutes early for a break. Like that, just that experience, I think everyone can relate to. And then we just take that to an even more absurd level, but still have everyone in the environment treat it as normal and standard. I think that it, it inherently helps people understand, like take their own personal experiences and they can relate to the people of this colony. So even though they are going to an absurd level, again, there's still that familiar touchstone that helps them empathize with these characters. Yeah. And you know, I, I do want to interrogate you guys a little bit about some of the complicated realities that this this vision of, of capitalism, sci-fi, impact on its communities uh, ha has in the outer worlds. Um, one of the standout moments, I think, early on in the game uh, is the first major planet, uh, this Edgewater community. Um, there's this great moment where one of your compa companions who's lived, uh, Parvati, who has lived in this community basically all her life, she asks you if you really understand what you're about to do before you redirect the water supply one way or the other towards Edgewater and its, you know, very corporate structure or the uh, the kind of enclave of deserters who are trying to make their own more greener uh, society. Uh, and something like that really stuck out to me. And actually, it, it got me to do the classic thing of stopping playing for a minute and really sitting there and thinking like, yeah, uh, okay, this is very classic obsidian design of there's no outright good or bad decision. Um, and I felt perhaps for the first time like, hey, I, I am an interloper. Uh, who am I to really judge this community? And uh, started to think about, yeah, what is what would the impact be on all those people who are just trying to get by, even though they're doing it under the boots of an uncaring corporation? Um, what narratively and and overall design wise, how do you create decisions like that? And was it important to you guys to really communicate the very complicated reality of capitalism? Well, I think I mean. One of the interesting things about that specific moment you're talking about where Kavadi stops you and says, have you thought this through? Yeah. That wasn't a part of that quest flow. That was the thing that we actually added after watching a bunch of people play through the game and they got to that moment and most people were making one choice and weren't looking at all the other options. So we were trying to look at, okay, we obviously need something here to remind people that there are two choices and this is a gray situation. And because Parvati is such an empathetic, relatable character, having her do that moment where she stops and says, no, seriously, have you thought about this? I don't know if you're, have thought about the other side of this choice, really worked very well to get players to, again, stop and think about like what are the repercussions. And watching a lot of various people play through the game on streams, 
that moment, like the, that experience you had seems to be a very common universal one where everyone's like, yeah, oh, I need to think about this more yeah, and absolutely. go explore. It's, it's been fantastic. That's definitely a, a big waterfall comment. Uh, not just where did you send the power, but also, hey, did you notice our body uh, speak up and try and get your attention? Mm -hmm. um, why do you ask that question? Because I think it is a perfect example of how uh, level design and area design and narrative design are working together toward the same end. The feedback that players don't necessarily understand their choice or that they are all uh, dramatically making the same choice mm -hmm. uh, very much came from testing and it came from uh, area designers. Um, that, that, is a, that is a game design, that is a, that's feedback that relates specifically to game design. As a narrative designer, my job was to understand where that feedback came from and to present a solution and to try to keep that solution not, as you say, feeling gamified. So uh, the solution was that Parvati would, in a way, speak up for her own town because she is a human being with a lot of empathy. It's natural for her to kind of see the other person's point of view. And what I love about that moment is that it establishes a few things for our game. First, it kind of establishes that Parvati is the conscience for the game. Mm -hmm. And secondly, what I loved is I loved seeing people online talk about why would Parvati actually stand up for this horrible town? And some people say, well, it's because she has a lot of empathy and she's a good person. And some people say, well, it's because she's been conditioned. She has lived here her whole life and doesn't know any better. Um, and they're both true. And what we wanted to do as designers is give players a moment to, to just kind of experience that and come up with their own interpretation and then make their own decision. And if that decision is well-informed, I feel like it's a decision you kind of, it sticks with you for a while. It doesn't just feel like, oh, this is an RPG. Of course, I have to make a choice here. I'm just going to make a choice. It allows you to role play. Mm -hmm. That's always been our start from the very beginning is let's make an RPG. I know this is a weird concept, but an RPG where the player actually feels like they're role playing, like they are a character in the world. I think another thing that's interesting about that is, again, watching various people stream the game and talk through like why they make the decision they're making. A lot of it comes down to we like we revel in the the gray area between like the the, the pure good and pure evil choice. So even though Reed is not the most sympathetic character, the guy who runs the town of Edgewater. He does have moments that people can relate to and understand his motivation and his reasoning. And when you, on the other side, when you talk to Adelaide, who's running the deserter area, she comes across as very sympathetic, very someone like that you would initially want to side with. And then as you talk to her more and drill down, you can learn some of the downsides of working with her that no matter what you choose, there are definite reasons to justify that decision and for it to be the right choice for you as a player. I think what that moment with Parvati, I think really helps people think about and start drilling down and finding out more information from those characters. Cause like the, like that gray area where there's a lot of nuance and a lot of interpretation, I think leads to these points where players will discuss like what their choice was and why it was the right choice. And I've seen like, I've literally seen like one streamer get into argument with his chat about why he was making the choice he was, and like arguing back and forth about no, 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 you're not considering this point about Adelaide's position, and that's like as a developer, that is fantastic to watch, and being able to see 
in real time, people's reactions to these choices has been amazing. Yeah, our goal always from the start was to make believable characters rather than just NPCs. And sure, because human beings are all flawed and complicated and nobody's pure good or pure evil. We all have weird and complicated relationships with the people we live with and what we believe. Um, and I think it paid off. I think people really resonate with the way our NPCs feel like characters and not just quest givers. I, uh, I, I, Reed Tobson, the, the leader of Edgewater, definitely stood out to me too because it's not a one-to-one -one by any stretch, but like I've been in a position of leadership before uh, with, I, I, I co-founded a college publication that ended up having like 15 people working for it. And like you, you go through the motions of trying to make everybody happy. And I even had a few points where some of my uh, uh, coworkers you know, brought me aside and said, Hey man, you're making a big mistake doing X, Y, or Z, or like, Hey, you need to stop doing this or that. And it was kind of a come to Jesus moment. And so I, I, I did really kind of actually identify with this guy who, you know, at first you think like, man, he's, he's the corporate CEO of this, uh, of this backwater town, you know, what should I care about him? And then that, that doubt in his mind, even though he, he himself, perhaps most of all has been conditioned to love the company above all else. Uh, definitely struck me hard. Yeah. And, you know, the companions themselves too, we talk a lot about Parvati, but of course there's a lot of uh, different embodiment of uh, just uh, thoughts and feelings and opinions and archetypes in a like late stage capitalist world. Uh, you have Felix who you meet on uh, the, the giant space station uh, a little later in the game. And to me, it was funny juxtaposing Parvati against him because while Parvati is this, of course, you know, she's a, she's a, the conscience of the game. She is this naivete and innocence, uh, but a good heart. Felix is just fuck the man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what was it like kind of bringing um, different styles of, I guess, reactions to this world through those characters? Because you, you certainly have characters like Felix or maybe Ellie who are, they're finding their own way through the world uh, in, in very colorful ways sometimes. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly how we went around uh, making our companions. We wanted each companion to represent a certain take on the world. Uh, we wanted a very diverse set of companions so that everybody could pick a favorite. There was someone for everyone. Uh, Felix is, you're right, very much not like Parvati. Uh, he, he's aggressive, he just wants to break the system. He's very gung-ho about it. He's not particularly introspective. Um, we made him partly to provide that kind of a voice in the game. Uh, for example, if you if you start working for the board, Felix has a real problem with that. And even though he's not really the brightest guy, some of his arguments about working for the board and why you should never do that make a lot of sense uh, about how you know there is a certain banality to evil. You just have to do the occasional job here, you get paid a little bit there, and suddenly you're you're complicit in whatever evil the board is doing. Like that's mm -hmm. his position. But at the same time, I wanted him to be a funny character. He's got a lot of, he's got a sense of humor that to me is, is the most, the most Futurama of all our companions. Um, he's got a lot of dumb moments. He's got a lot of, uh, he's got a lot of um, uh, issues with the board that, that he expresses in a kind of funny way rather than a serious way. Um, and, I, and I think the way we made him a character that you could really enjoy is not just his attitude, but the fact that he really likes the mm -hmm. player. Um, 
he will stand up for his boss no matter what. And even if you're going down the board path, you can manipulate that naive, gung-ho sense of loyalty that he has and make him stick by your side, even though you're a horrible person. <laughs> so, so, so we found ways to make all our companions as fun as we possibly could and relevant to the player, while also giving them a particular take on the colony that would kind of make sense. I, I think that, um, you know, Felix is a lot like me. I, I might talk a big game, but really at heart, I love structure. And I, I, I would like maybe a leadership job in, you know, my line of work one day. But for now, I'm, I really do definitely need guidance and, and mentorship and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you never really stop needing that, but definitely at a, at a certain level of youth. Yeah, I can absolutely see how uh, that could get manipulated. And uh, it is really interesting. I, I've been playing more with Parvati and Ellie lately, and I've uh, I just reached Monarch not that long ago. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to give Felix a few more opportunities to uh, chime in. Exactly. That's really what he's like. He it's funny. It's funny that you should say that because yes, he's very much about destroying the system and you know tearing down authority and fighting the board. But yeah, he wants structure. Like when you find him, he just lost his job. And I think everybody can kind of relate to that because he was trying to express himself because he got angry, um, because he was being talked down to. But what he really needs is a place to belong, right? He wants a ship and he wants to be a part of a crew. He wants a story, so he's just not some kid that got left behind and doesn't have anything to his name. Um, we try to make all our characters relatable like that. Like, um, you know, even Neoka has some vulnerabilities. Even Ellie, if you if you get under the armor, um, you know, has some has some very strong feelings about identity and what it is to live in this colony. You know, uh, Br Brian, uh, you were, if my research panned out correctly, you were director on Tyranny, correct? Yeah, I, I thought mm -hmm. that that game also dealt really well. For those, I guess, for audience members who don't know, Tyranny is. Uh, uh, one of Obsidian's RPGs, more kind of classical isometric CRPG style. And the whole narrative hook was your player character is one of the subordinates of a like evil dark lord who has basically conquered 99% of the known world. And obviously a, a great hook um, and a lot of really great writing in terms of, um, again, making you grapple with like, well, is there a lesser evil here? Uh, is there an actual good like decision? And like, where, where do my loyalties lie kind of thing? What developing that game and its world, did that have any impact on how uh, you kind of viewed the, the systems and, and universe of outer worlds? Well, I think definitely with, with tyranny, because it was essentially a world where evil had won and you began the game as a character part of the evil army that had basically conquered everything. It was a, definitely a different take on the RPG choices where in some ways, like you'd mentioned uh, people playing through Outer Worlds, trying like the single try and find ways to, to please everyone or to not make the hard choice where they want to like, find ways to get everyone to get on board and be happy with each other. And one of the things with Tyranny is like, that approach basically led to some of the most horrific atrocities in the game because you were surrounded by very horrible, evil people and trying to appease them all just led to the worst possible mm -hmm. outcome. So in some ways, having to say, no, I'm going to go this road versus the other and piss off somebody led to a better outcome for the player uh, over the quest line of that game. I think the thing that, obviously, for the outer worlds, we're not in a situation where everything is evil. We were 
much more in a more of a shade, a lighter shade of gray, I guess I would say, for what the Outer Worlds is, where even with the board, which is the the titular evil of the game, they have a, they have reasons for doing what they want to do. Like we we may not agree with them, we may think they're way too like too far or too absurd, but when you deal with uh, one of the representatives of the board, uh, Sophia Conde, she has very legitimate reasons for the decisions she's making about the the good of the many versus the good of the individual. And I think there's a lot of justification and rationale behind the choices she makes and that she wants the player to make. And I think one of the things that I mentioned before that like Obsidian, we, we really prefer the, the gray moral choice. Um, like for Tyranny, it was definitely a darker shade of gray for Outer Worlds. We do want players to have like options for the good path or the, the good choice, but we still want to make sure that it's not like pure pure white and, and pure black for good and evil. We want it to be just always a choice that feels like a good resolution, but not everyone is happy because that's more like real life and real characters. No matter any kind of compromise or decision you make, someone is going to be unhappy. And it's a matter of finding the solutions that you yourself are satisfied with and can live with the consequences. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think um, complicated choices in RPGs lead to better gameplay. Mm -hmm. uh, and they lead to better gameplay because as players, we all have the tendency to say, okay, what is the best possible outcome? What's the ideal outcome? What do I have to do to make that happen? And we start metagaming a little bit. You know, we, we don't necessarily role play. We start doing the thing that we need to do in order to get the best possible ending. And while we do have good endings in the outer world, I think it's definitely brighter than tyranny that way. Um, <laughs> there's always there's always a little wrench in there. There's always um, some complication where it's not a perfect ending. For example, bringing up Edgewater. Yes, it's possible to get Reed to step down and have Adelaide come back and the deserters reunited, and that feels like the best ending. But if you interrogate a little bit closely, if you pay attention to the ending slides, there's a cost for, for that kind of a resolution. And that resolution has some pretty nasty side effects if you go working for the board instead. <laughs> so that's what we do. Uh, we're an RPG company. We make games that have a lot of choices in them. And as our choices become more complicated, they also become more memorable. It's, it's funny talking, of course, about tyranny. Uh, being a, a more uh, computer RPG top-down style thing. I, I just finished up uh, Larian's Divinity Original Sin 2, and that has, you know, more smaller, disconnected uh, areas and chapters. Um, and, of course, a, a lot of hay has been made about Outer Worlds is these smaller environment, environments, some of which you can kind of haul ass across in, like, a minute. Uh how does that how does that impact your ability to i guess you know tell a story but also an interconnected story with you know a million different spinning plates um did it did it feel like you were designing more of a a kind of classic top-down rpg uh or how, how did you feel when you scaled it down to those different smaller sizes well i think of the the structure for the outer worlds as far as having the individual planets like it was important for us since it was a sci-fi game to have multiple different alien environments the player could visit and experience to get that visual variety and that that breadth of experience, which is one of the reasons why we decided to go with multiple worlds rather than one large contiguous environment. Um, and the structure of the game is in a lot of ways similar to Knights of the Old Republic 2, one of the, the first games that Obsidian and Studio worked on, 
where there are individual locations you're visiting using a ship um, that allows you to travel between them. Like that's very much similar to what the outer world's overall structure is. And I think one of the things that that allowed us to do is to make very clearly defined local stories for the areas that you visit, each of which has some reflection or some view on the larger story of the game, that being the struggle between the uh, the board's control over the colony versus the desire from Phineas Wells to change things in his view for the better and to make uh, find ways to fix the problems the colony is facing. Like that's the the larger overall conflict of the game, and each of the different areas you visit, whether it's Emerald Vale and Edgewater or Monarch or Groundbreaker, each of them gives you a different perspective on that struggle by showing you how different people in this colony view the situation and the struggles of the individual versus the, the corporations and the, the capitalist uh, society they're in. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Is that if you have smaller self-contained areas, it is easier to tell like a more tighter handcrafted story and it's, it's a bit easier to, to create something memorable for the player. Um, personally, I, I think it also has to do with just the themes of the game. It, it is a game about space exploration and going places with your ship. Uh, you are one of the few people in the colony who is actually free to travel and go to different areas and different locations. And, different <coughs> and I think uh, that kind of game is better served um, having fewer, having like discrete locations each of which have a specific story instead of, say, something like a big sprawling Mojave wasteland. Um, it's just better suited to the kind of game that we were trying to make. It's funny you mentioned to um, uh, local stories and local narratives, uh, mm -hmm. the, the individual people and the individual kind of crises or, or struggles that they're going through under this system, right? Uh, I think that might be why something like Outer Worlds or maybe like even Fallout New Vegas uh, might speak to a... a similar but still fundamentally different audience than the one that like initially fell in love with uh you know bethesda's version of, of fallout uh i've never been to washington dc i've never been to the east coast period except for florida i guess and uh playing something like outer worlds or follow new vegas kind of feels more midwest to western to me uh and maybe perhaps helps me connect with those characters in a way that I understand more of the of the very broken down former mining towns that you know my my family lives in uh, as opposed to okay here's this hollowed out husk of like America's governing body kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, I, I suppose we'll leave off with uh, this last question here just more along the lines of narrative design to uh, obviously, a lot of different designers work on a game like this, and I think that there are points in the game where it can feel like, uh, like you say, local narratives and different kind of stories. It can feel like there are sometimes different kinds of storytellers writing a certain section, and sometimes that works really well because like a story might stand out. And I think sometimes that might hinder it a little because you're like, oh, okay, I, I I missed how the story was being told an hour or two ago. But I guess I suppose I'm asking. How do you balance uh, a large team's input on a, pro on a big, big project like this uh, and manage to keep it you know, thematically coherent, of course, uh, but also to 
make sure that those little moments that really stick with us, like the Parvati stuff, like the Felix stuff, uh, how do you manage to balance everyone's input to make those tiny moments as coherent as the big stuff? <laughs> uh, it's definitely challenging, that's for sure. Um, I think as far as like the making sure everything is coherent and comes together, that's really where like, Tim Kaine and Leonard Boyarsky, they, their role as game directors was to be the, the filter that ensured everything came together under their vision for what this world and this project as a whole was. So when you have individual like, artists and designers and writers and programmers giving their feedback and providing suggestions and things they'd want to see in the game, all of those things filtered through Tim and Leonard to say, yes, we like this, or no, that's a great idea, but we need to change it in this way in order to fit this universe, or no, that's, that's a great idea, but for a different game, it doesn't really fit what the outer world is supposed to be. Like They were the ones who are basically the, to say yes or no, or to make things filter together to fit into the overall structure of the game. And I think that was combined when you have individual people like Natalia wrote Felix and is very passionate about Felix and making sure that those moments with him really stand out and are excellent throughout the game. And like, for example, we, we have a, an area working on whether that's Emerald Vale, Edgewater, or like Stellar Bay and Monarch. Usually there was one designer and uh, narrative designer who were working on the main arc of the area. And we'd bring other people in to work on side quests or other things in the area. Just we wanted to have the main structure of the area have a consistent vision and voice, but then through the side quests and, and ancillary characters in the area, provide other points of view from other writers. So it was that that mix of a, a combination of like strong authorship from a group of people with sprinkling in voices from other members of the team that really helped give it both freshness and consistency from area to area. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Brian. And I think uh, authorship is a good way to put it, although I think it's more of a, as a shared authorship. Um, so, so Tim and Leonard are directors. Uh, what they did was they established the borders. They said, okay, here, here's how far out you can go and still be true to our game. Uh, they, they defined what the edges of the outer world is, and it was up to us to kind of work within that space. But we were given authorship and freedom to kind of express ourselves uh, and do more or less what we wanted within those boundaries. It's my belief that stories are not told purely by narrative designers. The story in the outer worlds and in any game we make is told by everybody on a team. Mm -hmm. Artists uh, create stories through their concept art, through the design of their creatures, the design of the armor. Level designers are, are critical to environmental storytelling, to defining the experience of the player as they go through the story. Um, so to your question about how do you how do you design a game as sprawling and uh, as lore heavy, I guess, as Outer Worlds and still be internally consistent? It's very much a matter of defining the borders and then allowing what I believe is a very talented group of designers to go in and work within those borders and work in a way that they enjoy. It is true. A lot of the areas you see are written by different area designers with different strengths and different narrative designers with a different style. But the end result of so many designers working on the same project is you get a very vibrant, diverse, and fun game that always feels fresh. You don't feel like you're retreading the same ground 
with every single area that you go to. Definitely one of the strongest RPGs I've played in a long time. And I think like a lot of people say, you know, it, it is like slipping into a nice, warm, comfortable bath of just here's some really strong storytelling and we don't need to do anything uh, too crazy, but uh, the story and the world and the people, especially I, I, I am so fascinated by characters like Parvati and Viker Max and Ellie uh, that I am so eager to help someone like Parvati, you know, land that interstellar crush uh, <laughs> kind of thing. So I, uh, it is, it is, I was tweeting the other day, it's literally an interstellar version of, Hey, will you go talk to that girl you like for me? So um, <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. Um, I'd like to think I speak for pretty much everybody on the team when I say that's why we made the game that we make. We want our players to pick up the game, settle in, feel kind of like cozy and good and just lose themselves in this exactly. world for a little while. And when you come out of it, you just feel good. Even if it's like a dark, occasionally depressing, dystopian place, we always wanted the players to feel good when they were done playing it and maybe going for a second playthrough. And folks, you know what? We will wrap it up there. And uh, Natai Podar and Brian Hines, I am so glad that you guys took some time out of your very busy schedules. I'm sure you know the Outer Worlds has a lot of work left to do, uh, future plans and all that we won't have to dig into. But uh, thank you for making a really great game and for uh, building a really cool world. And I'm excited to keep exploring it. And yeah, best of luck with everything in the future, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been great to... And folks, you can find a new episode of the 1099 here every Monday on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcast. Check us out next week as we talk to uh, Ben Hansen of MinMax, former Game Informer fame. Uh, try saying that 10 times twice. But <laughs> uh, And yeah, folks, we will see you here next week. Thank you very much. Yeah.